work hard, you continue yeah. to, you know, fight through the small things and you continue to push that there's something waiting for you in the end that's really big that you can't even imagine. But just fight, just keep fighting and keep pushing and you'll be all right. Randy Foy kickstarted the latest dynasty run we've seen by the Villanova Wildcats basketball team. He was Jay Wright's first Big East player of the year and his first NBA lottery pick. And since then, Randy's returned the favor as an active mentor to the Villanova Hoops team and remains very close with Jay. But this show today isn't about Randy's time at Villanova. It's about Randy's story. And it's emotional. It's also inspirational and it's daring. Randy grew up in Newark, New Jersey without parents. He has a severe and rare biological disorder that often leads to death. His best friend was murdered, and he found basketball. But it hasn't stopped there. Randy's one of the most articulate, cerebral, and introspective athletes I've ever met. He's done so much on the court, playing a dozen seasons in the NBA now, but more off of it, and he's only getting started. Welcome to an all-new episode of Suiting Up Podcast. This is the show where I delve into some of the stories of today's leading athletes, entrepreneurs, and entertainers, and I'm your host, Paul Rabel. Enjoy my conversation today. I go deep with one of the planet's greatest basketball players, Randy Foy. My coach, Jay Wright, he said to me, he said, you have a way with people where, you know, you, you, you don't have to have a conversation with anyone, but... You can read people. You can read them and you can understand exactly what's going on. It's like, in other words, like a sponge. Like you know how to deal with people without having a conversation just from watching their actions, hmm. watching how they move. So a lot of times when I'm around people, I don't open up in the beginning. So I'm kind of, I stand back and watch. Little, little shy. People think I'm shy, but I'm not. Just you're watching, absorbing. yeah. I'm just absorbing everything you're doing, watching, you know, your tone, not just your tone around the people who you are cool with in your family, but the people who you don't know. Yeah. I watch that stuff. And I think that's what makes me so cerebral when I'm telling these stories, when I'm breaking down these stories, is because I think I'm, to be honest, telling it from, you know, a, a third eye or. Yeah from an out-of-body um, experience. I think that's where the stories are coming from. Yeah, and, and so I'm gonna test this theory that I've been developing. It, it's, I come from a, a great, you know, kind of binded family. Uh, my parents have been married for 35 years. I have an older brother who's been a great mentor for me and a younger sister. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the middle and try to figure out um, how, to, uh, how to think independently and such. Um, my, my theory is that you know, I, I, when we look at the world, I, I, ideally we say, okay, you have your your household that that's intact and the moral compass that's set and the trajectory that's kind of blueprinted for kids to grow up. And then I've developed really great relationships towards the back half of my 20s and now more so into my 30s, where uh, a friend, a business partner, uh, an acquaintance comes from a modern family, is how I call it, where it, it's not as structured. It, it's not the traditional way. And the double-edged sword of that is, the, you know, ideally, as a kid, when we look at at least what society says, we want to have a family that's around, parents that are around and nourishing us, people that we can build connections with. But I think that path, while may, it may be safer, is, is more linear to growth. And for me specifically, I've challenged myself later in my life to really find out at the core who I am. And I found that 
of my friends that grow up in modern families, while it's more difficult on the outset, whether their families are divorced or in your case, in your case, uh, your father died when you were two and your mother had left the home when you were in kindergarten and you didn't know why or where and you were raised by your grandmother and aunt. So the challenge is that, but you also are then equipped with the, uh, with, with basically like, I have to figure this out by myself. And it's really hard, but I've found that like you develop that sixth sense as you have. And these people that I know that are part of these modern families or, or traditionally, as we would call them, broken homes are more evolved and know how to handle the really challenging circumstances that most of us maybe on a linear path don't. I think you hit the, the, the nail on the head when you said the sixth sense part. Yeah. Because not having a male role model in the house um, where you have to go out. And you have to understand, you have to trust certain people who you don't know. So you have to understand exactly what this person is about, what his family is about, and how he's going to help you, how he's going to benefit you. Is he using you or he's, is he around you just because of for your talents? And this is something that my grandmother allowed me to do. Hmm. I never had a, a curfew. I never came in a house, I wouldn't say never, but majority of the time where there were mills on the table and, you know, we sat there as a family and someone prayed and we ate and someone asked me, hey, how was school today? Um, how was this? How was that? Do you need this? Or do I have to sign a permission slip? The things that I, that I do now with my kids. Yeah. And just the faith part of it was just more of from my teachers. Like I didn't even, I just, I saw my grandmother get down every single night on my aunt roof and pray. And I never noticed it. I never said why is she why is she doing it? Just just walk by her. And I remember I would ask her something while she was praying and shit just stopped me. And then once she was done, then she answered me. But the religion part and going to church wasn't brought to me by my by my grandmother. Yeah. And she was extremely well my aunt. Yeah. <laughs> I say my aunt, but we I call her my grandmother. But and she was extremely religious. It was brought to me by my sixth grade teacher, hmm. who was also extremely religious. And she said, hey, do you guys want to go to church? Because the way you're moving and the things that you're doing, I don't think um, God is going to accept you into his kingdom. So you guys should come to church and you guys should be saved. And I said, all right. And my whole approach and thinking to that was asking my, one of my friends, hey, you think they're going to have food there so we can eat? And he was like, yeah, he was like, church, you know, people always cook. It's going to be Sunday. Yeah, it's going to. So I went and it was, I had the time of my life. Like, and I believe in God. Like, yeah, I don't go to church um, as much as I want to go, but I pray. Or necessarily yeah. we're told we should go. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, spirituality but I, is. Like you said, I, I pray and yeah. I pray in good times and I pray in bad times. Yeah. Through ups and downs. Like I look at life as an obstacle course. There's going to be some parts where you're like, whoa, this is pretty easy. But then there's going to be some some parts of life where you, you think about it and be like, hey, I don't think I'm going to be able to get up this hill and jump over this 12-foot barrier and then do it again and again and again. Yeah. But that's life. Well, add on to uh, the, the challenge that you had you know, just growing up with your grandma and aunt and kind of figuring it out, as you said, uh, life on your own. But you also grew up with a biological disorder where your organs are 
and you're pretty, you can probably correct me where I'm wrong, but are, are mirrored in opposite locations. So your yeah. heart is on your right side and your liver's on your left. Yes. So that's very rare. And it's also often complicated into other health disorders, but because your organs have been perfectly mirrored, you were able to become a world-class athlete. Yeah. <laughs> you know, growing up in Newark, and and uh, you know that that's a really difficult environment, especially as a young kid without uh, parents, biological parents at, at your side, and and so all, among all this adversity, did you did you often sit there, find yourself as as a younger kid, you know, asking why or having some type of animosity toward the rest of the world? I just always thought my life from the beginning. Once I went through that, when I was eight years old, I went through a, a period where I had pneumonia I went to the hospital and the doctors constantly came in for I would say like a week straight and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me and I'm just thinking like I have a severe case of the flu Mm. and so my grandmother she couldn't even put it into terms where she could explain it to me yeah exactly what was going on and so I'm sitting there and she, my grandma just always say, your life is for what you have been through. You know, you just lost your mom's about two and a half years ago. Um, your dad and just different things like that. She was like, you are one blessed kid. Like you're special. So the doctors come in and they say he has situs inversus, which is all my organs are my heart is flipped and my liver is flipped. The main, the biggest organs, the main two organs, your heart and your liver. My heart is on the right side and my liver is on the left side. And one of your testicles, hey, I saw most people, your left testicle hangs lower if your right is on a certain side, if your heart is on a certain side, yeah. or your other one hangs lower. So it's just like oh, things that like sense. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so things like that. And she couldn't explain it to me. Like she couldn't articulate it in a way where she could explain it to me. But I just remember at that time coming home and telling my teacher, my grandmother told my teacher what was wrong. It's just like, do you feel anything? And I'm like, only thing I feel is that sometimes I get sh- like shortness of breath where mm-hmm. I feel like it's wheezing and I really can never understand that. And that's just from the mucus that's built up inside where when you have situs inverses, you have more mucus than others because everything at, let's say, eight weeks when you're in the womb supposed to spin clockwise. Yep. Everything in me spent counterclockwise. Huh. So you just build up a little bit more mucus where if you get a cold or something, you might feel like you have bronchitis or toughness to, or allergies or things like that. So that was my grandmother said to me early on, you're a special kid. Your life is written. I can already see it. And this is something I believe from the beginning. That's Just amazing. things that, that happened in my neighborhood where, you know, hanging out with one of my friends and he's saying to me, hey, man, like, don't go hoop, man. Let's, let's go steal this car. Let's go do this. And I'm saying to myself, yeah, that sounds, it sounds cool. And I'll look tough to everybody else. But then something would say to me on the other shoulder, nah, you should go play basketball. And then I say to him, yeah, I'm going to go play basketball and completely lie. Because I think there's going to be like some people there watching me for AAU or high school I want to go to. Or if I was in high school, just make something up and come outside. You hear a car crash and you see one of your boys getting chased by the police. And it's like, when you think about it, you just stop and look up and say, wow, I was supposed to be getting chased with him. Yeah. You know, that's uh, that's an interesting story because I, I think 
there's a lot of questioning that comes up from young kids, especially as, as bullying has proliferated with social media and such, where you know, it's easy as an adult and me not having kids, and I know you have daughters, to, to maybe suggest, well, be honest and be confident in yourself. We work on how to build security around who you are as a person and doing what you know is your true north. And in your case, you wanted to play basketball. You wanted to stay away from crime. But it's not that easy. Social pressures and in some cases, you know, bullying, as I mentioned, physicality, there's a result of it. So you would, you would add a lie to it, which I actually think in this case is probably fine. But, you know, God forbid anyone goes there and says like, hey, later on, uh, Randy, in your story, when your friend wants to get you to hijack a car, say, hey, I've got some coaches that are watching me. There's, there's a potential recruiting event that I got to go to. You're still playing basketball, but, it, you know, I, that, that's how I'm interpreting it. I, I'm, I'm actually saying I think that's good. I, I've never really heard anyone more formally or a researcher that can, you know, lead certain social norms that say like, hey, it's okay to, to add that white lie on top of it. Would you advise kids to do that? I, it feels like it feels right. Like on my on my Instagram page, um, Floyd Boy, whatever it says, basketball saved my life. And I'm not saying basketball saved my life because of the financial situation that it had put me in. Hmm. I'm saying basketball saved my life because there were a lot of times I could have did things that completely ended my life. Or without no basketball, one of my best friends that I grew with from the age of let's say nine years old, he was murdered. Um, last year, while I was playing for the um, while I was playing for the Brooklyn Nets, and it's because of the path that he chose, the mm -hmm. people that he chose to hang around. And I'm saying to myself, if I wasn't playing basketball, this was my best friend. So I would have been there. Yeah. And I don't know if that would have been my life. I don't know if that would have been someone else's life who I love. But I know personally, and I know just dealing with all these different that basketball has saved my life because of the platform and the opportunities and just being able to see, you know, the exposure, just looking back and going to, you know, one of my friend's house that's so successful when I'm 13 years old and then coming back to my house and just sitting there looking up at the ceiling saying, I don't want this. I want what he has. Yeah. You know, I want to be able to, you know, put a white picket fence around my, my property. This is what I want for my kids. You know, on this show, we're always on our kick to grow. But nothing gets tackled without the minute tasks and projects that absolutely need to get done, but don't always have the time or person power to do them. Welcome to Startup Growing Pains. And we've got a solution for this work. Use Magic. Magic gives you a team of trained remote assistants that you and your staff can use anytime, 24-7 for almost any job that needs to get done. It's very affordable, no salaries to pay, no minimum commitments. Use Magic for tasks like data entry, sales, customer support, research, transcription, booking flights, and more. This is technology sourcing at its finest, people. Here's what you do. You'll set up an account, then simply reach out to Magic with your request via text or email, and a real assistant will message you back right away. They can do just about anything most employees do, but Magic never gets sick, never quits, and doesn't require HR. Use Magic as often as you need. Only pay for what you use by the minute. Now, here's the special offer. You can see what a difference magic can make to your business by accessing this special offer to get you started. Full transparency, I've done it, and I absolutely love it. You can get a free consultation by phone and priority service. Your projects will be the first in line to get done by going to my special URL. It's getmagic.com forward slash Rabel. Start delegating to magic today. 
I trust the service and love it. Go to getmagic.com forward slash Rabel. That's getmagic.com forward slash Rabel. How, who got you into basketball? How'd you find it? Just in the neighborhood. We, yeah. It was seasons. So the main three sports. So my first love was baseball. I love huh. baseball. It was 11 and 12-year-old team. Main three, baseball, football, basketball. Yes. Yeah. And I it was 11 and 12. I was 10. They took one 10-year-old. And I ended up being the second best player on the team. It was a, my neighbor who lived across the street. He was the best. His name was Ronnie Parker. He was two years older than me. But once he left from that team, I became the man. Yeah. So I always played up. So when my daughters play sports now, they always play up. They always play with bigger and stronger kids. Just because I know when you play against someone your size, yep. you're going to dominate them. Yeah. And, and what ended up leading you more towards basketball over baseball? Was it just the accessibility of it? Was, the, was it the culture of basketball? It was because of the way, to be honest, I didn't want to wear tights anymore. Yeah. So the baseball thing, it seemed like the baseball parents were getting tighter, and it seemed like the basketball shorts were getting looser. So I was like, I don't want to wear yeah, this. Shout out MJ. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Turning it around. <laughs> so in the Fat Five, it was, yeah. it, was a little, it was a little bit after that, but it was that era. Mm-hmm. And I just remember just being able to travel. And my AAU coach picking me up and just being able to play like against a guy like Jay Will. Yeah. Seeing a guy working out like Al Harrington. I remember it was this point guard. And I think he's in jail now for, you know, I think he had a sentence of 15 years, but his name was Sal Thompson. And man, this kid handled, and the way he passed the ball was unbelievable. was unbelievable. And I remember Jay Will being there, and that's my boy. Yeah. And I and I would look at Jay and be like, "Yeah, you're nice, and you could take it to the next level." But this guy handle is being an inner city kid. You're like, "Wow, I want to handle the ball like him." And I just remember there's no shot clock in high school basketball, and he would dribble the the ball the whole entire clock if they were up at the end. Unbelievable. And I just was like, I want to be like this guy. I, I remember seeing uh, players like that in high school as well, growing up in Maryland and having played in Montgomery County in the public school system and then witnessing basketball at its best in high school with DeMatha and Montrose Christian and the likes. And, and it's really interesting because Jay's been on the podcast and I remember growing up watching him and thinking this guy could be the best player in the NBA uh, per his unique skill set and size and his thrashing capabilities. He's an unbelievably explosive athlete, has the motorcycle accident. Now he's he's doing what makes him happy and he's benefiting the rest of us through his messaging. But to your point with this guy, Sal, and we see it in in football and lacrosse and baseball is, is phenomenal talent that just turns left right it's before college, sometimes in college. And so for you... W- you talked about your conscience and your grandmother's guidance and, and helping you stay focused. You know, what else was there? Was it just supreme talent? Was it your drive to be the best? You know, how did you stay on that track? And then when things get really heavy, like in high school, during the recruiting, when you get to college, you, you even get better. I think- Where is that gray area? What's that thin line? I think the thin line is being saying that I want to be the best- I want to be this and I want to do this and I want to accomplish these things without ever saying it to no one else. I think that's the, that hmm. fine line. Like where you can be cocky and extremely selfish, but just in your own head. Never go out and say, hey, I'm going to rip your heart out. But yep. give them them piercing eyes and them killer eyes to yep. saying, hey, 
when you step on this court, you know what time it is. Or, you know, if you, you don't make the McDonald's All-American game, that drives you. If yeah. Someone else makes it that you know for a fact you're better than. Yeah. But it's just that you went to public school and that person probably went to Catholic school, so they made it over you. Because the public and Catholic school is a big scene in New Jersey. Yeah. Well, at least when I play. Yeah. So that's the, that's the fine line for me. Understanding exactly what you want to do and never crossing over. Yeah. You know, it may sometimes it may look at they may look at you and say, "Hey, you you corny man. Like, let's go out, let's hang out," and I can't do it. Like, I got a goal. I got goals. Yeah, I want to achieve certain things that you probably don't want to achieve. Like, you're not athletic. You're not. You don't want to go to school. You know, and and I didn't want to go to school, but once I learned that I had to go to school to accomplish my goals and my dreams, that turned into one of my goals and dreams. And that's why I think I, you know, I graduated my degree from Villanova. Yeah. So you think ultimately the ability to internalize that thought and and be kind of rest assured, confident in where you want to be, once you start airing that out, you just you you become more about that than what your uh, sort of true north is. I think that people understanding exactly what you want to do. I yeah. think people just how, how do you fight the insecurity around I I'll speak for myself like you know and, and I I'm you know, in high school and think that I'm better than someone who's ranked above me. Um, I, I, I want to share that rationale with people that I'm close with or, or even get in front of that person. Our, our, our tendency as humans is to try and vocalize that, but to keep it inside, you have to have just a high level of confidence and security. I think for me, it just was my circle. Yeah. I think my circle knew exactly what I wanted without me saying it. I think my circle was so small where people knew when I was upset without saying it, or people knew when I was happy. When I was happy, I always, I always showed that I was happy, but they knew when I was upset, they knew something was bothering me. They really didn't bother me, but when I stepped on the court, I'm saying, hey, we playing against this guy, we playing against that guy, you guys should be there and tell everyone else to be there because once I did what I had to do to that person, I wanted everyone to see it and know that I did that. Yeah, when you uh, when you started to accomplish a lot of that. You became a, a top recruit in the country and top 10 shooting guard, top 50 overall player. Uh, then you decided to go to Villanova. And this is right on, you know, Jay Wright's, uh, the cusp of his career, what we now know and seeing as, as a legacy and what he's building at Villanova. He was previously at Hofstra. As I remember interacting with him back in 2005. Really? Yeah, he was at Villanova then as a coach, but... My uh, offensive assistant or offensive coach was the assistant to the head uh, at Johns Hopkins was previously at Hofstra. So he had a good relationship with Jay and Jay came into the locker room and spoke to us and got us all fired up. Really? Um, Anyway, part of my guests seeing what your relationship is with him now that you committed because of Coach Wright. Were there other factors? Like if you're a top recruit in basketball, assuming that you're getting all the love from everyone. That's cool. That's like... That's extremely interesting the way you set that question up because it was Coach Wright, but it was more of Freddie Hill. He's mm. the a top assistant at Seton Hall right now. And Freddie Hill was at Seton Hall with Tommy America. Tommy America left and went to Michigan. Mm-hmm. And I'm not completely sure, but I think he didn't take any of his assistants. And Freddie Hill was the the best recruiter in the tri-state area. He had me. He had Alan Ray. Yeah. He had Jason Frazier. 
I'm not sure if he had Alan Ray, but he, I know he had the class you yeah. brought in was insane. We had the number one recruiting class that year, but he I think he had me and I think he had Curtis and Jason on the verge of going there. And then Tommy left and took the job at Michigan. Why was he so good? I think because he showed up. Yeah. All the time. He huh. showed up and you knew Coach Hill t- cared. Because Coach Hill, they would say to me, I would go to the games and I was like in seventh and eighth grade. And I remember Coach Hill said to me one day, and this like changed my life forever. And then Tommy, now thinking about it, I'm like, it's all set up and recruiting. But yeah. it's like, man, we wish I wish I had you tonight. We would definitely beat them. Like they walked by and said that. Huh. Like as they were walking to the court, the recruits stand or sit at a certain spot when they ran out the Continental Airline Arena in New Jersey. And where I was standing up clapping, and he saw where I was sitting, and he walked past, and they said, hello, hello. And then – Tommy Eric looked at me and said, I wish we had you tonight. And they was playing, they were playing against Georgetown. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God. And then and Coach you were Hill. In seventh or eighth grade. I was like, I was like 13 yeah. years old. And then Coach Hill said the same thing. And it just stuck with me. I was like, man. You're like, let's like, go. These this guys, is yeah, for me. This place is for me. And when I was getting ready to commit, he's like, um, we have a problem. And this is before social media. So no one knew what was happening, but it was in the process for like two or three days. He's like, I think Tommy's going to take the job at Michigan. I was like, um, so what does that mean? He's like, he's not, I'm going to see if I get the head coaching job here, but he's not taking, you know, some of the guys or most of the guys. And so it was like a dead period for two weeks. And I can remember just waiting, waiting, waiting. Then I can remember I have Billy Donovan in my ear yeah. saying that they're going to sign Robeson. Yeah. I can remember Cincinnati at the time, with, I think Kenyon Martin was there. I think he's about to be a, a, a lottery pick. I remember Kenyon Martin being there, and Kenny Satterfield was someone from New York who I watched him play and looked up to his game. I think he was two years older than me, and or three. And they're saying, hey, this guy is leaving, and this is like my school where I'm getting ready to make a decision. They're all coming in, yep. And I'm like, wow. And so two weeks go by, Coach Hill – is still texting and calling, and he says, Jay Wright is going to get the job at Hostra, and I think that I'm going to be his top assistant. Or Jay Wright is leaving Hostra, yeah, going to Villanova, and he's going to get the job at Nova. And all I'm thinking about, like, Villanova, like, all right, I know, they got Kittles, they got Tim Thomas. I don't think they're that good. Like, I don't know I don't know anything about the tradition of the Big Five. I don't, I don't know any of that. I don't understand – you know, Big East at the time. I don't understand. I just know Kerry Kittles went pro. Yep. And I know Tim Thomas went pro. Yeah. And I know Alvin Williams a little bit. I know he was a second round pick. That's all I know. I don't know anything else because all I'm worrying about is how I'm going to take care of my family. And I'm thinking if I'm going to have to get up and go an hour, 45 away, like I better be making it pro because I was a homebody. Yeah. So when you said take care of your family, it was it was always like NBA. It was always it was always NBA. I had a little article where a guy tangled my ro- my words up or put the wor- the wrong words out there and quoted me and said that I wanted to go um, out of high school. Yeah, and so everyone kind of laughed at me and they were like, "Oh, you trying to leave out of high school? You're not a- only big men go out of high school." And I just was I was embarrassed because you know people they they actually laughed at me, but I was saying to myself like I didn't say that. Yeah, like, I said that. You know, this is my dream to go to the NBA. I'm not saying right out of high school. And it just was amazing. Then Coach Wright, I remember Coach Wright coming to Newark and sitting down, you know, when they do the home visit. 
And this is like my first or second time meeting him. I went to Hoops Mania, then we did the home visit. And I'm looking at Coach Wright, and he's looking at me. He's like, um, isn't your grandma? Like, they're looking like, was there supposed to be a cook meal here? Yeah. And they're looking as she didn't cook because, you know, this is our first time experiencing something like that, experiencing yeah. something like that. And so Coach Hill was like, wait here with him. Because Coach Hill grew up um, probably like 20, like, 20 miles away. He was like, wait right here. So or, this is a visit at your house. Yeah. Yeah. And he comes down, he goes to KFC. Yeah. And I could just remember like it's a Spanish guy looking at Coach Wright. And he's looking at me. He's like, You good? And I'm like, Yeah. Because they think it's Coach <laughs> yeah. Wright and Coach Hill are in suits. Yeah. I'm like, you good? You sure you good? I'm like, yeah. And I look at Coach Wright and Coach Wright is like red. And he's I'm like, You're good, Coach. Relax. Yeah. And then Coach Hill leaves go to KFC because he's used to being in that, in yeah. those areas. And Coach Hill comes back with the food and he's like, Coach Wright, he's like, he looked at, we, we laugh about it now, but he's yeah. like, I look at Coach Wright and I'm looking through him and he's looking through me and he's like, hey, let's eat this food, do what we got to do, get him to sign and let's like, let's get out of here. Yeah. And we tell the story now and Coach Wright die laughing when we talk about it, but it was real, man. It was like, I was a raw recruit. Like we didn't understand any any of that stuff. It just was like, hey, where do I sign and where where do I suit up at to start for your program? Yeah, that was it. And and you know, Villanova, uh, a much different environment than up up until that point, living in Newark, and you have access to to meals at the school and then private facilities with a basketball team. It's probably a, a you know about as close to the NBA from a lifestyle perspective as as you had probably experienced. Was there difficulty in navigating that like did I was, you find yourself taking too much or how did you keep the focus did i was you? i was shocked yeah it was culture shock for me like i walked into that environment and i was in absolutely shock like they we talk about and me and my you know me and my teammates laugh about it where the first time i think we were in a communications class and we had to do a presentation just by yourself and i can remember you know laughing and joking and trying to you know push the everything aside, like all of the jitters in my stomach and talking to my guys and we were going to alphabetical order. And then I knew once it got close to F, I knew I was going to have to get up and give like a two minute spill about, you know, something that the teacher gave us. And I can remember sitting there and Curtis Sumter, like when I got, and I looked at the list and I think I was like six and then it got to like the fourth person and I was like, yeah. And then Curtis like, starts building yeah. up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sidus' verses start kicking in bronchitis. And Curtis is like, Curtis like, man, what's wrong with you, bro? And I'm looking at him. Well, you know, he's from New York. What's wrong with you, son? I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, I can't do this. Yeah. And then he's like, what is, what's wrong? Like, you about to, he's like, you sick? And I'm like, no, man, I just can't do this. Yeah. And he's like, what? And I'm like, stand up and talk in front of all these people. He like, it's us, man, relax. And then I'm saying to myself, I can't do it. And I just remember getting up there. And then it looked like, I, you know how Patrick Ewing used to sweat back in the day? Yeah. <laughs> I was in, a, I was in a, a freezing cold room and I broke out in a sweat. Like I just played a 38-minute game in college basketball. And I just remember going back to the, um, our um, academic advisor and I was like, I can't take communication classes. I was like, I can't get up twice a week and just give a spill on whatever I have to do. I was like, I can't do that. I was like, my nerves, I was like, it's, she was like, you play in front of 20,000 people. Yeah. How are you nervous in front of 19 kids? Yeah. I was like, it's different. I was like, so I grew up, different. yeah, I was like, I grew up in, 
and, and it was all, you know, blacks and Hispanics. And I was the man. Like here, these kids are super rich. They're all white. And it's just me. I can't do that. And then she was like, all right. So she switched it over. And so I did sociology, which was cool. Then I was like geography because I love just talking about the landscape of just diff like different things around the world, like animals, animal planning, um, the Smithsonian Channel. I love stuff like that. And so I chose geography. Yeah. And once I chose geography, I ran with it and I loved it. How how hard is it even in reflection now, but certainly when you were going through it, it sound, sounded difficult. But just the notion that like people don't understand the school systems are antiquated. Um, there's this kind of academia versus athletics in, in the school system. Um, you know, you, you come from a neighborhood where you did, and, and as we spoke at the very beginning of the podcast, everything to your ability to get out and reach your goal, which you ultimately did in providing for your family and continuing to still strive as, as, a, as a business person and, and basketball player. But like, how hard is it to not feel understood in those circumstances as like, hey, I, I didn't, you know, no one looks like me. Everyone uh, has, has gotten for the most part here in this class a different type of education than what I was afforded. Um, I'm in this position because I'm a talented basketball player, which by the way, I worked my ass off to become probably harder than anyone else here under the circumstances. There's absolutely no doubt, but just actually, but probably not being understood. There was a, there was a lot of hate among not just the students, but other student athletes. Because at the time when we first got there with Coach Wright, we weren't that good. We just was a team basically potential, trust the process. Yeah. yeah, Trust the process and this team is gonna get us to where this class is gonna get us to where we need to go. So people, they didn't like us because you know we're sponsored by Nike yeah. and we would have like the best stuff and some of the other programs wouldn't have. They would have like you know the leftovers or mm -hmm. stuff from two years ago. And they didn't like that. And then it was the same with kids on campus. They just didn't under, understand, like, why are you guys, like, kissing their ass? Yeah. And they're terrible. There's favoritism so, yeah. to the athletes. So it was, it was a lot of hate. By. Yeah, it was yeah. a lot of hate while, when we were struggling. But once we got good, it seemed like we could do no wrong. But leading up into that process, when we talk to, you know, when we have these, that's why when we go back and we go to Nova, Coach Wright always say, I know you guys didn't win a national championship but you guys started this, like everything. And then he always comes to me and say, you were my first everything. You were my first big player, um, Big East player of the year. You were my first lottery pick. You was the first guy, more importantly than all of that, that bought into my system that helped me change the culture of Villanova basketball. Yeah, and, and not only that, but you still actively and regularly go back and mentor the players and spend time with Jay and so, like, what, what's the impetus of that? Is just because you know how important he and the program was to you that you're designating time? The program was, the program changed a lot of people' outlook on the way you play basketball. Because we thought that being inner city kids from either New York or New Jersey, we felt as though the only way you, you're successful is playing one on one basketball. One on one basketball and getting as many shots up as possible to average plus 20 points and say, hey, this was just a, a stepping stone for me here. This is where I really want to be, the NBA. Yeah. But he kind of beat that out of us our first two years. And he said, all right, if you guys want to go one-on-one, we're going to do it my way. 
So it's going to be structure in it. So it's going to be movement. It's going to be a set where you move, he move, a cross screen. And then when you come up on the backside and the other the side that you're on, there's going to be movement. And then you can go where there's no help. Yeah. So I can't have you getting past. So he, like he's, I that's why. That. I, yeah. I always say kudos to Coach Wright because he does everything his way, no yeah. matter what. And I just saw that he was up for the Knicks job, but. I'm like, you can't do it your way there. You know, they want you to rebuild and, and yeah. do it their way. He can't. That's not that's him. interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's a big difference between college and pro sports. But I would add that, you know, he, he did it his way. But what I, th- I think, like, the, again, the that, that towing the line, as we had talked about, a little big differentiator is what it sounds as he, he also knew that how talented you all were individually in one-on-one. He also knew that in the back of your minds, whether he could, you know, beat – Villanova culture and teamwork and winning for the team into into the front of your minds that you wanted to still be in the NBA and it was really important from a financial standpoint from a family support standpoint so he he did what he wanted and 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 how he believes the game should be played but he also morphed it into that one-on-one style as you mentioned just clearing space where I think a lot of coaches when they say do it their way they have a system they bring in their recruits and sometimes the recruits don't fit that system and they say well we're doing this this system anyways because it worked before bill belichick is it is a another example on the football side that does it his way but he looks at his specific talent and will change the system based on what they're best at i think what the what makes coach Wright so special is that at a there's a certain point that he make you not make you, but the system make you forget about the NBA. It's all about the what's best for the team. Yeah. The greater for the team. It's always, you know, we versus me. The name on the front of the jersey and not the back of the jersey. And when you start thinking like that, and when you start playing for the guy next to you, and when you're not worried about points, it seems like everything just start to fall in place for you. Would you, would you guys do any like team building exercises specifically? Because I think that, uh, I know I say it and other folks in different sports that I've played across say it's about the name on the front, not the name on the back. But how did, was he able to actually get that through? Through film. Film. Yep, through film. Like it was, so once we got good, it was more time or as equal time in the film room. Just like, we, so it'd be two hours in the film room and two hours on the court. Yeah. And it would be a four-hour day. So we'll go and do two hours right after 2.30 to, let's say, 4.30, 4.30 to 6.30. But that's how he got it across to us. So he'll show us, hey, this is your way right here. Look. And then they'll have the numbers before analytics or any of that yeah. stuff. This is when we do it your way, we're about, let's say, 36% successful. Solid if you were a three-point shooter, but if you do it our way, when you catch the ball this way, you're about 52% more successful. Yeah. So then he'll put it into terms. If you were on Wall Street and you were working and someone said, hey, if you put this much money here and it earned 36%, would you keep doing it? Or if someone said, if you do it this way, you can earn 52%, 52%, which way would you do it? Yeah. And he just tried to, he kind of put it into, you know, his terms that we understood. And once we understood it, like I was sitting courtside watching a game against, um, or watching practice before they played against Kansas. And it was like deja vu. Everything that we started, they were still doing it. And I've been gone for 12 years. Yeah, And I'm like, wow, this is what we started. This is blind faith right here. We didn't understand nothing that they wanted us to do, but we just believed that 
you know, what coach was saying was right. It took two years. Like I always say, it took 24 months, but that last, that last 24 months was the best, probably some of the best basketball of all of our lives. Yeah. And, and like you said, the, the best class that Villanova had had, the first class where in, in, your, in your case in particular, where you had someone be a lottery pick in the NBA, you've played on a bunch of different teams in the NBA. Uh, you've played a couple of 82 game seasons, which we're hearing a lot of conversation around LeBron finally mm-hmm. playing in 82 games or starting in 82 games. It's, it's, that is a feat unto itself that is unmatched in any other sport per the physicality of what it takes to play on a hardwood floor night in and night out. A lot of accomplishments there, but kind of staying on the challenge of uh, individual performance, the goal to make it to the NBA, how important that is and how meaningful it is um, versus winning. So Coach Wright was able to get you guys but using his data pre-analytics to think, okay, this way works, this way doesn't work as much. And you guys collectively say, well, we want to take the way that he said works because we want to win. How often in your career on playing with so many teams do you have guys that are like, well, the way that doesn't work, I still perform better. And in college, I may get in, I get a higher pick in the pros because it seems like, you know, winning a championship is important. But if you're the best player, then you're going to get drafted no matter what. And then certainly in pros, you can play on a, a, a lesser team, but dominate the statistical category and probably get a bonus on a number of different ways and get a higher value during your contract when it's up the next time. How are you able to, I, I, my guess is I know where you land, but how are you able to identify players that are in the other category? And then what, do you, what are your solutions when playing with them? So there's a, we call it fake defense, right? Yeah. So a guy who's acting like he's playing hard or putting his life, putting it not his life, but his body on the line. Yeah. If the ball is rolling out of bounds and it's already out of bounds, he'll die for it. Yep. But there's no chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's no chance that he can get the ball, right? And so you're looking, but just to yourself, just as a as an athlete, you're like, man, what are you doing? Get up. Yeah. And I play with a lot of those guys that when the ball is rolling and it's already out of bounds, they'll die for it. And the first thing they'll do, they'll die for it and they'll look at the coach. See, I'm playing hard, coach. And I absolutely hate them guys. Yeah. I, I, if you're going to dive on the floor, dive on the floor when you know you're going to dive and someone else is going to dive on top of you and there's going to be a tussle for the ball. Yeah. And so when you when you got guys like that, because not everyone buys in. Someone, Some people may, may buy in 100%. Some people may buy in 80% or some people may only buy in for what may work for them. Yeah. This works for my game. This is what I'm comfortable doing this. And sometimes if you, if your if your leader is totally bought in, it won't affect the team. But if your leader is one of those guys where it's like 60%, 70%, it's going to affect it's your over. team because he's basically you on the court. Yeah. So the way you deal with those guys, you kill them with kindness. So you you trick them. So they're trying to trick you, but you trick them into not only playing, you know, the coach's way, but you trick them into playing your way. Where in the huddle, you're like, yeah, man, way to go, man. Way to set the tone for the team. And it's not giving them, you know, false, false hope, but you're basically letting them know that, hey, you're a part of this. And then he's he's kind of saying to himself, Well, I am playing the right way and I am playing hard. Yeah. So I am a part of this, so I'm doing it the way that the coach want me to do. But in all actuality, he's not. 
but yeah. you just make him feel that way so he can continue to do it. And then that 60 might turn into 63%. And then as you keep working on him throughout the year when we need him the most, that 60% might be at 85%, but at least he's trying. Guys, quality is important in all aspects of our lives, including our underwear. We deserve underwear that feels good, provides support, doesn't chafe or ride up. You know the deal. We don't want anything that we have to throw out every couple of months. That is what Saks underwear is all about. Saks has taken something we all need and has made it better. The only men's underwear that's actually designed with our anatomy in mind. They have comfortable fabrics. They're moisture wickening and breathable. They have great supportive design with their ballpark pouch where you can move around freely and total support with no friction. Here's their special offer. Now, as Suiting Up Podcast listeners, we want you to try Saks Underwear, so I've arranged a great limited time deal for you. It's $5 off plus shipping on your first purchase online. And to get this great offer, all you need to do is use promo code RABEL. That's right. Order a few pair of Saks Underwear right now by going to SaksUnderwear.com and use promo code RABEL. That's Saks with two X's. Remember, SaksUnderwear.com. S-A-X-X underwear.com, promo code RABEL. I say this with full confidence that there's not one team out there in professional sports or even in college sports where every player is 100% fully bought in. And there's this notion that, well, why wouldn't there be if these players are at the highest level, they've worked their ass off to a degree to get there. You have to. In the pros. In the pros. Totally different. You're getting, you're getting paid. You know that your career is transient and the, and the money's going to stop at some point when you're done playing. How does, how is that possible? It's just like, there, there are nuances in culture. There's work ethic. There's buy-in. There's, there's winning over individual performance. So no team has that full buy-in. And then every team, and why I like your suggestion around kindness, has to deal with and be. And while we're players, we certainly can't trade the guy yeah. or girl. We we don't have the ability to do that. So so how do you work with what you have? So you say kindness because I think naturally, what we do, whether we know it or not, is we turn the shoulder on that person. What do, you, what do you do off the floor? Like, how do you build that relationship with that person or do you not? Because there is a lot of stress in doing and in, in having to build a bond with someone that you know is playing fake defense. So let's, let's talk about the pros part of it first. So it's clicky, right? So it's certain groups that are always together. Don't be right before practice, right after practice. Yeah. Sit close to each other on the plane. When and this we're is the same in business too, yeah. by the way. But yeah. <laughs> Sit close to each other on the plane when we're traveling. Soon as we land, text each other. Probably a little group chat, three, four, five people. Yep. We're going here, right? But this is the way I think that you get – you have team team functions. When you know guys are vulnerable to split and break this way or that way, you have team functions. Hey, it's um, mandatory dinner when we leave because no one is going to go to dinner twice. They might – in the pros, they might – go to dinner and then probably go out, but no one's going to dinner twice. And I think that's how you bring guys in. Hmm. When guys have conversations with each other and you learn that person's personality because no one human being is the same. So someone might have been raised a different way. Someone is probably extremely shy and quiet. Someone is really outgoing. But if you bring all of them together and they learn each other's personalities, then they start um, understanding each other. And once they start understanding each other, then they start having conversations and you know how to approach that person. That's why I say when you're in a huddle and you tell that guy, hey, 
way to play, but you know how to deal with him because you have whatever 16, 15 players, but everyone is different. So it's like in the NBA is like handling 15 different Fortune 500 companies yep. where you're saying to yourself, this guy reacts to this a certain way, but this guy reacts to that a certain way. So this might motivate him and this might make this guy upset. If I yell at him, this might make him upset, but if I yell at him, this might motivate him and he might play harder. Yeah, the onus falls on the leaders to then dictate that. And I like that, and it makes me think that with your team, even if there is some disruption or anxiety between players that are aligned on culture and winning and trying to, on a daily basis or weekly basis, get the other performers that are lagging up toward that level of selflessness – you have to then almost take this macro approach like, hey, to use your example, the Fortune 500 company, we're this business unit and our goal this year is to win a championship. And yeah, it's going to be difficult. Nothing's easy personally and professionally. But as a leader, these mandated dinners are going to help us get there. Mm-hmm. Me reaching out to this person and spending time with them off the floor and making sure that we're killing them with kindness, kindness as you said, uh, during huddles when they do something right to try and just push them over the top. And it's not a uh, like a false kindness or a false relationship. You're putting your your job on the line as a leader and saying, I'm going to steer this ship in the right direction towards a championship. I think being a leader is the hardest part because yeah. is, you're it's, basically it's extension. Job. Yeah, you're, extension, you're an extension of the coach. So whatever the coach is, is preaching, he he has to practice it, and he wants you to practice it not only on the court but – then again, off the court. Yeah. And so being a leader is, is so tough because a lot of stuff lays on you, especially when a younger guy does something. And you probably did that before. You probably traveled or you didn't go as hard and then a young guy do it and then the coach blame you. Say, you need to set the tone. So if you set the tone. These younger guys know exactly what I'm looking for. So a lot falls on the leader hand. And, and sometimes it could be stressful, but at the at the end of the day, when you guys achieve your ultimate goal and winning something or accomplish something, you know, it is like the team and we appreciate it. But then it's like the coach look at the leader and say, I appreciate what you have done, your yep. sacrifices. Yep. And leadership and or captainship isn't just a tag that goes on your jersey. They say, okay, I'm, I'm the best or I'm the leader of this team or I have great relationships and, and girls or guys trust me and that's why I'm the captain. Like it is a, an additional job, an occupation that you have to take on and I remember just hearing, I'll use Derek Jeter as an example, like he's going through the bullpen and spending time with the players uh, two hours before the game starts. And he knows that takes a lot of time and focus on them. So he has to, as the captain of New York, get to the facilities four hours in advance so he can spend time on himself, right? Because we still, as leaders or captains of your team, are expected to perform at the highest level. So where most people come into the locker room, do their thing, get ready so they can perform. They need the aid and the and the help and the check-ins from the captains. Yeah. But that's taking time out of their bandwidth. So it, it's an additional job. So just be weary of what you're signing up for. Leadership isn't easy. And then you know, when it gets even more difficult is when your responsibilities get layered with injury, which you've yeah. also uh, faced a lot of. So now all of a sudden you have to spend an additional two hours through physical therapy and recovery and all that type of stuff, which pulls you away from time with teammates. I think the most dis- disappointing injury that I had was my um, second year. Yep. Um, I was playing for the Timberwolves. 
I can remember how we were playing. I think we had like after my rookie year, I had an awesome rookie year. Um, I think I finished like top two in rookie voting for rookie of the year. Yeah. Made first team all rookie. rookie team. Yep. Yeah, and I, I just that jump re- shot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember going in. And they had a starting point guard, Mike James, and they traded him to Houston. And when they traded him to Houston, they said, you know, Kevin McHale called me in. And he said, this is your team now. You know, so take that approach and lead. And so I remember going home after playing the whole 82 games and I got a call like six days later and said, hey, for, you know, the young guys, we're having workouts for the first and second year guys. You guys have to come back and work out. And I can remember looking, she was my girlfriend then, but my wife. And I was like, man, they already called me back. And I was like, man, I can't even like, you know, have a little bit of fun in New Jersey before I got to go back to Minneapolis. And so Long story short, I went back, I started working out, and I remember Mike James was going to be traded, but they didn't know they were working on it. And he knew, but his kids were still in school, and mm. and he was working out with us. And I remember I tried to go and block his shot, and I could just hear something, like I said before, I just, I heard something like on my knee, where it was like small, but it was like, like a little, like a little like pop, or like a little, and I was like, yeah. man, what was that? And... I kept playing. Kept I didn't. Playing. Feel, yeah, I didn't feel anything. And my whole thing throughout everything just toughness and fight through it. So I kept playing, kept working out, and it seemed like the more and more I kept working out, it just got worse. It was just my knee would get sore. Like I was, I wasn't a big icer, and I started having to ice to calm down the pain. And I didn't know, so I didn't want to say anything to anyone. And I remember right before training camp, I remember doing something where we were like squatting, and I like squatted, and I think I thrust it up real fast, and I felt it again. And I'm like, man, what the hell? And we had training camp in Turkey, in Istanbul. And I'm just saying to myself, like, all right, Mike James is gone. This is your team. This is your chance to be exactly what you want to be. You want to be this all-star? Yep. You want to be this this player? This is this is your time. So don't say anything and fight through it. Because I could still play and run, but it, I could tell it was a little different. When I'm jumping off, when I was doing single leg stuff, it was a little different. Yeah, and I could just remember going over there, and after those two days, I had a heavy limp, yeah. and I went to the trainers, and it was like, "Hey, it's tendonitis," and I'm saying to myself, "I think it's more than that because I got tendonitis in my right knee, and it's sore." Ten- tendonitis is messed up. Yeah, because it makes you feel like your whole knee is gonna fall apart. Exactly. So like, what are, you sure it's only tendonitis? Yeah. <laughs> and I could just remember like being able to, you know, move and do things on this leg that I couldn't do on this one. And they were telling me to do a single leg squat and I couldn't do it. Got an um, a MRI, it was nothing. Um, got an x-ray, it was nothing. Damn. And they like, what do you mean? Like, you're hurt. Like, basically saying like, you, sorry, you're faking but, something. Yeah, man. yeah, you, you're faking. And I remember couldn't play. I remember I shot an air ball. I remember my wife said she was watching it and I never, like just, I take pride in working on my jump shot and never shoot an air ball unless someone, you know, fouls me. Yeah. And I could just remember just coming back home. They gave, they told me to take a CT bone scan where they could see it in 3D image. Took the scan, came back, said, you got a cracked kneecap. Damn. Yep. And I knew. And they were, I was like, how long am I out? They were like, between six and 10 weeks. So after six weeks, I would go back to the doctor and they would see if the bone yep. filled in. Still didn't fill in. Still nope. didn't. So that ended up being. Bones are the worst. Yeah. And it filled in least 90%, but I still came back and I played and I played my heart out. But it just like, it just tore it, that right there tore a piece of me because 
I knew that was my time. And just the way I played at that time, I was just, I was relentless going to the basket, but being able to shoot. Yeah. I was relentless. And that, that took a piece of me because ever since that injury, I was never the same. Like yeah. I always had some type of soreness or pain that I had to deal with in my left knee. Yeah. And what what I know about playing into my thirties now and, and other guys and girls that play into their thirties, just play professionally, generally speaking, very few people are actually healthy. No one's healthy. No, no, no actually, one. no one's healthy. No one's healthy. <laughs> no one's healthy. That's why when guys like LeBron's it's playing not, 82 games, yeah. like you said, like you're running into people. I was watching lacrosse, and I think somebody like whacked him. He whacked some guy, whacked the guy across his arms. Yeah. With the stick, and I'm like, man, <laughs> it's not. It's not. And an I just know I, I foam roll. I roll myself out with a lacrosse ball, and I'm like, if, I don't know how hard some guys throw the lacrosse ball. I'm yeah. like, that ball hits you going like 80 miles an hour. Yeah, it's like, that has to hurt. Yeah, but we play through it, and we try to get really smart around how to continue to play while you're injured or even during rehab, and. What I wanted you to talk about, because I get these questions in inbound, I'm sure you do all the time, like, just tore my ACL, this just happened, Mm -hmm. I'm low mentally, but I want to also continue to improve, these are younger kids. So you would sit in a chair and shoot and practice your jump shot. And and I'm sure there were other things that you would do, but I think generally people or young athletes out there think, you know, I'm, uh, I'm injured, I can't do anything. But in lacrosse, it's the same thing. I would sit in a chair and have a catch against the wall. So there are ways that you can take mental reps, mm-hmm. also continue to work on your technical ability while you're injured. So when you're injured, especially like like ACL is different. Even from when I first started playing in, let's say, you know, high school and and even in college, it was basically, hey, don't do anything. But now I think you start doing rehab. I think two days or three days right out of surgery, I think. Yeah. So I think mentally your whole approach should always be, I'm going to beat this injury. And it's going to be some days where you're going to say you're really upbeat about beating the injury. And it's going to be some days where you're not as upbeat. But personally, just dealing with injury, I'm going to beat this injury and I'm going to come back stronger. And when you say them things to yourself, it sparks something, you know, inside. And when, when you get that, Whatever you're doing or whatever the doctor is telling you to do do at that time, you do it. You do it and you do it to the max. I always say, if a guy's telling me, hey, do 12 reps on this three times, I'm going to push myself and say, I'm going to try to do 15. Yeah. Because I know that it's it's control. There's nothing that I'm going to be doing within the first two to three months that's not control. So I'm going to push myself to where I'm so fatigued. And I learned that from watching a guy like Kobe. Yeah, I would say the what you're referencing is feels like what, what I call and what I've uh, read a bunch around is mind gym. And, and so like how you are thinking about recovery, how you're challenging yourself, how you're going above the bar, or above the standard. Uh, but what you also said stuck with me and I challenged myself today in, in a big way to, to, to kind of take the, the medicine that I, subs- or I prescribe others. But when I was younger, I certainly didn't is that when you're recovering, you have those good days, and that's awesome, but there are also equally those those bad days where you feel depressed, you feel like you lost a step, you feel like you're three days set back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think from a psychology standpoint, it's important to uh, accept, and, and in some cases, 
enjoy those days as hard as it is because on reflection, when you're out of the injury, when you've fully recovered or when you you know have lost consecutive seasons and then finally win a championship, it's those moments that were the clear indicators that got you to a place where you're like, never again, I'm, I'm not going to do it. So if we, in other words, if we just constantly had good days, our improvement would be so much more marginal. Yeah, like I have, like you think about it, you have, you probably have more good days than bad days. So in those, in those good days, when you're going through stuff, I always stop and say, you always got to remember to whoever you know you may, you know, give thanks to, give thanks. Yeah, because because you got to think about it, those bad days are coming. Those bad days because it's like an obstacle course. No matter what you're going through in life, just always. Try to stay humble, humble pie, humble yeah. pie. Just stay humble and say to yourself, hey, I have seen worse because a lot of us have seen worse. There could be something as simple as, you know, having a, a fender bender, right? Yep. But once you get out of that fender bender, you could be driving 10 miles up. You could see a serious car accident. Yep. And you could be like, wow. Like give thanks because that could have been me. Framework, man. It's it's and, and I'll add another example from a, from a traffic standpoint is how often do and this is very much how we we take on sport and life. How often when you know, the meter just expired, seven minutes over, and we get a ticket and we're like, oh, I'm so unlucky. Yeah. God, I can't believe I got you know where is this person? Like this is so. This is, and then we forget about all the other times where the meter ran out and we got there and there's no ticket. Yeah. Like all right, good. You know, and, and like, those are examples of like not enjoying the the benefits of good luck or mm-hmm. or a win. And I think in sports specifically, we're told like next one, next one, next mm-hmm. one. So much that I mean, I've I, I've caught myself watching back tape of like winning a championship and then just falling back in the mold and in an interview and being like, well, we're going to enjoy this tonight and get back to work for next season tomorrow. It's like, what is that? Yeah, enjoy the moment. You have to enjoy. Yeah. Um, with with your multiple teams that you've played on across the NBA, one thing that I, I want your perspective on is is how do you acclimate to new teams? It's one of the more dynamic yeah, and unspoken uh, aspects of sport. Like I trades. said, like I said earlier, it's dealing with different personalities. Yeah. So when you first come in and you're you're on a new team, you can't be yourself right away because some people might feel as though if you're a lion, I'm coming into this pride and I'm trying to take over. Yeah. That's not going to sit well with the top dogs there. And just from my personality, you know, I like to play around and joke a lot. So there's certain things that you can't say to guys if you really don't know them. You mm-hmm. need to, you know, you need to have a couple dinners with them. You need to allow them to to set the tone and, and say a few things about you before you say exactly what you want to say to them because you don't want to hurt feelings or you don't want to be blackballed from the team. You don't want to be in there where there's a group of like five guys hanging out, going to eat, and then there's another group of six guys going out to eat and then you're going out to eat with the trainers. <laughs> you yeah. don't want that. So just the the dynamic of going into another team, especially a successful team, I think you gotta be real careful. You know, you gotta you gotta that's when you gotta be able to absorb like a sponge, just watch what ticks guys. Yeah. What guys like to do, even not just personality wise, but game wise. Would you have any tactics specifically around like, hey, I'm gonna take a few of these guys out to dinner or is it primarily like let me be let me make sure I'm 
being super respectful of the process and this culture and be humble and and like how do you how do you expedite that in other words or is there no way to do it you just have to finally get there i think more of your work ethic Mm -hmm. i think before practice and after practice guys see that especially if you come in a little early yeah and you're getting shots up like you know most guys especially younger guys you do this all the time yeah man can i shoot with you Yeah. yeah come on then you start shooting. Then once you're shooting and you're competing, like say if we just shooting jump shots, mm-hmm. then you start a little trash talking. And you kind of get a feel for his personality, trash talking. And then once you guys finish, travel to a city, what you getting ready to do? Oh, I'm just chilling in the room. You want to go eat? Yeah, sure, man. Come on. They see you do that one guy. One guy turns to two, two turns. And then you created an atmosphere around yourself where this guy's pretty cool. He's yeah. not. He's not like what. He's not what I thought he was. You know, I heard guys say this about him or guys say that, but he's actually a cool guy. Yeah. So you you've played on a number of teams in the NBA. The, the latest one is here in Brooklyn with the Nets, so yeah. close to home. And you're in New Jersey now, and and you're doing a, a ton of things off the floor. Um, haven't officially announced your retirement and that uh, sounds crazy man it, i thought i was gonna play basketball so i was at least 60 years old <laughs> that's how you know I, I i used to say that when i start first started working with my sports psychologist one of the first things i said was well i want to play till i'm 40 and he's like why and i was like well i don't know because it's like and what it really was is that was my identity yeah like playing and and, and anyway like what we found out quickly or what i found out through his uh guidance was that uh when you set those goals those like big goals they're important to have at a young age but when you get older it's about playing in the present moment that's how you get the best out of yourself and so if, if you're just like playing the game so you can continue to to push the boundaries of yeah. performance you, you get lost pretty quickly I, w- I would always say i want to play between 13 and 15 years at this point right now i'm at a, i'm at 11 so i'm two off and that was always one of my goals to just because I, I felt as though that was respectable People be like, oh, if you play more than that, yeah, yeah it's more I, than respectful. Yeah, they was like, that's. I thought, but for me, just being the athlete that I was, all the accomplishments I had leading up into that, I was like, this will basically seal it where I could just relax um, and ride off into the sunset. But when I got to about let's say nine and a half, it got tricky because I start saying that it was. It's not about just playing. It's not about just enjoying yourself and just loving basketball, where you're playing basketball like a kid when you're on the court. It's a lot of politics involved. Yep. It's a lot of people saying where you're moving pieces, where they're saying, hey, can you give me these two guys and this pick for this guy and that guy? It's a lot of different moving pieces. And you start to get labeled where, oh, man, well, can he still do what he can do? Yep. He's, he's over 32. Can he do this? Can he do that? He's a good locker room guy, but what can he bring to the court? And it gets tricky. And then you get out there and you do some good things. And it's like, well, let's not keep playing them because the fans are going to see him a little bit more. But we got to develop this guy. Or we got to develop this guy. Or we got to trade for this guy. Yep. So it gets tricky um, because. It's a big business. It don't, it's, it's, more of a, it's more of a business than it actually is just playing ball. Yeah, Ball is the, is the least. That's when you're, everyone is stress-free when you're out there on the court. But off of that, you always worried about getting a call from your agent. Hey, you're coming from the East Coast to the West Coast. Are you going from the West Coast to the East Coast? Or you worried about someone coming and you're still there, but you're looking like, he's 6'7", I'm 6'7". We play the same position. Yeah. 
we played a six. So they basically brung him in here. He's three years younger than me, so they yeah. brung him in here for me. Yeah. So it's just that's the only time you're stress-free, I would say, is on the court or when you're at home with your family. But you always have to worry about the moving pieces of what can happen around you that can change everything that you're involved in, everything that you love, your home, your whatever. It can change like this in a split second. So that's that's the crazy part to me that, that stresses me out and that I don't like. It's just the moving pieces, but I get it because it's a business. Let me ask you something. Are you looking to hire? Aren't we all? As every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. We all know that feeling. We also know that it's much more dense than doing just that. So I've got support coming your way. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way. So they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you and us and me. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your specific job post. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Now, businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. I know we certainly do. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right. It's free. It's because you're a student podcast listener. Go to ZipRecruiter.com forward slash cross. That's ZipRecruiter.com forward slash C-R-O-S-S-E. Again, ZipRecruiter.com slash cross. It's the smartest way to hire. With Brooklyn, you've said that it was... Uh, although at the time unclear as to why you wanted to come back and, and just kind of the, the fate that took place and when you did come back and you were able to find out the truth behind your mother. Yeah. And, and ha- that probably would not have come across your desk had you not decide, decided to come to Brooklyn and play for a team that wasn't in playoff contention. People were wondering why mm-hmm. uh, you were doing so. But it, we, we said it earlier or you had said it earlier, how your your grandmother at one point when you were younger had said that um, your your mother was kidnapped and killed. Mm-hmm. And that's what you had grown up through and played, played basketball believing. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you get a phone call when you're in Brooklyn. Yeah, man, that was like, that was a surreal day for me where, man, just um, just thinking about exactly what... um what happened that day. Oh, let's just go back to the Brooklyn part first, then I'll, I'll get into that. But I had a chance to go to um, a, a contender. So that year I played for OKC. We yep. went to the Western Conference Finals. It was KD's last year. There, yeah, that right? was KD's last year. Me and KD, um, we're pretty cool. Where, you know, we have conversations and I, I respected the hell out of him. Um, he respected me just from playing against each other. I think I, at that point I was 10 years in. He was nine years in. We we were in the same division for most of our careers. He was on one team, but I was on two to three different teams. But we played against each other from Denver to Minnesota. So he respected me. And I can just remember, you know, KD said to me, he was like, you know, I, I don't know exactly what I'm doing. He never said I'm going to Golden State or I'm going to the Spurs or I'm going back to OKC. He just said – he was here in New York, and he was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, homie, like that. He was like, 
But at the end of the day, he was like, whatever I do, you know, you should roll. You should come with me, you know, as a vet to try to win a championship. And I just remember having an opportunity to go to a team like um, Golden State. And Golden State was there. It was like another team that was in playoff contention that you knew were going to be in playoff contention. Then there was another team. There was a couple teams like the Brooklyns and, you know, the teams that you know that was rebuilding but had some – some really smart people behind closed doors, had a family atmosphere behind closed doors. This is what, what I knew about Brooklyn, just from, you know, Sean Marks and Kenny, Kenny coming from that system and then Sean Marks working under Greg Popovich. You just know it's legit. Yep. Yep. It's all about family atmosphere. It's all about the good of the team. I knew that. And that's, it reminded me a lot of college. So I said, I can do this. That was the main reason that steered me to them. And it yep. was, it wasn't like I was looking for, you know, a, a seven, like an eight figure deal or something. Yeah. <laughs> it just was, hey, you know, this is this is home, and we think you fit what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So I end up saying, you know, I'm not going here, or I'm not going to go there. I'm gonna stay here. And so I get the, I talked to Sean there in Vegas at the time. Um, I talked to Kenny and all those guys, and I just remember being excited. I remember, you know, once the Vegas thing was over, I came back, started working out early August. Um, and just start killing it, playing yeah. really well. And they told me, you're going to be our starting shooting guard. And all the good stuff. And so we get ready. And this is my first time. I bought a house in New Jersey when I was 24 years old. And now I'm 33. And this is my this is my first time living in a home. So we're all excited. I got three daughters, my wife. We're all excited. Family. Because yep. we're always gone for like eight months. And when my daughters, when they started to get older, we would be gone for almost 10 months because they would have to go to school until June. And I can remember we doing orientation. We doing orientation at their elementary school and get a call from like a 646 number. And I don't pick it up because I screen them calls. You know, you don't yeah. want to, let's see if they leave a message, see what it's about. Totally. So they, they didn't leave a message. Then a 212 number called me. Didn't leave a message. Then the 646 called back and left a message. And as the 646 called back and left a message, start saying a whole bunch of different stuff. Then while he was like, while I'm listening to the message in the beginning, he's saying like, I'm the attorney general, um, the, the surgeon. I, I don't know, even know how you pronounce it. It's just like the the general surgeon yep. of New York State. And he's saying that. And I'm listening. Then my agent called me. And then my agent like, hey, some guy called me, left a message. And then while he's calling me, I see the guy from the um, the MBPA saying, someone call here for you. And it's like within this three-minute span, everyone is like trying to find me. And I was absolutely scared shitless because I just took my stress test from my heart. And I know I have situs inverses. And I'm like, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, something's wrong with my heart. I'm like, the general surgeon of New York, New York State is calling me about, you know, I'm just thinking that's like medical yeah. You know, the general, I'm like, that's medical. Then the NBA's calling me and then my agent. So it's like everything surrounded, you know, by basketball here. But I didn't finish listening to the message. And so my agent's like, is everything okay? And I'm like, yeah, I think everything's okay. When he asked me that, I'm like, something's wrong with my heart. So I say to myself, I'm like, all right, here we go. I was like, they're going to tell me something's wrong with my heart and I'm, I'm at to retire. So I sit there and I kind of wait. And I'm kind of just thinking about all these different angles that I can go through or how I'm going to explain this to my family. My career is over, something that I love since I was seven years old is about to be done. 
and I'm only 33 years old. I'm about to turn 33 because it's mm. a, I was 32 at the time. And I'm like, it's about to be over. So I sit there and I call a guy back. And then a lady's calling me. He's like, my assistant should be calling you from a 646 number. And, but this is the 212 number. And, he's, and the first thing he said to me is, are you sitting down? I was like, no, I'm actually at orientation with uh, my kids because we're home. And they start school on the 5th. And this is September 2nd. And I'm like, 2016. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, are you sitting down? And I'm like, man, what's up? Like yeah. that. And he's like, "Are you? I need you to sit down. Yeah. So I lean up against the window, like head first like this. Yeah. And I'm looking down. And he said, talk to me about your moms. And I'm like, huh? And he's like, talk to me about your moms. And I just was like, I need to know who this is. And he break down his title and everything. Yeah. And he's just like. Well, you did a story, I think. I forgot who I did the story with, but he's like, this story made me just think about we had a Jane Doe here. And I could be, you know, 1% right, or I could be 99% wrong. I don't want to get your hopes up, but I want you to do a DNA test. You and some of your closest relatives that's related to her, sister, her father, um, even your kids, because your kids could have 25% or up to 25% yeah. of her DNA. And I said, okay, um, send me the paperwork. So I still didn't believe it. So we did the DNA test and it came back. And when it came back, I was like, I was like, this is not real. This is probably like the 23 and me thing. Yeah. I was saying to myself, this isn't real. This isn't real. And then, you know, people around me are saying, this is real because they still have the body. And mm -hmm. he was like, the body's intact. We need you to have someone to come and get it. Um, if you want to do a correct burial. And I just went through all different type of emotions where I was upset, you know, with family members for not pursuing it as hard as I thought they should have yeah. saying exactly what happened to my mother. I was upset with myself just from being and you know, a, a financial situation where I could have did it and had private investigators and probably found out 10 years earlier, but I just didn't want to open those wounds and just let it stay. If this is the way it's supposed to be, this is the way it's supposed to be. So yeah. I just was like, it just was so many different emotions going through my body that had me um, just thinking to myself that, you know, this is, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. But then I get back to, you know, talking to my grandmother and just saying your life was, written way before any of us took a step or breathed air on this earth. Yeah. And just saying just to myself, like when things happen and it seems like all odds are against me, I always say this is the way it's supposed to be. But it's about the way I handle it as a man that's going to allow me to either drown or it's going to allow me to survive and come out on top of the situation. And so I came out on top. We did. We cremated her. Yeah. We, we did a correct burial. Um, my family members did handled her body, saying that it was it was intact because we had people in our family that works on the funeral homes mm -hmm. and at the morgue. So he was like, it's intact. Um, it's amazing. And now in my house, um, right at the top of the fireplace, that's where she lay. That's yeah. where she rests. Was was this general surgeon, like, is there hundreds of thousands of Jane and John Doe's? Was it was, especially was, in New York State? Yeah. Was he or she just, were, were they were they a big fan and supporter of yours like how did they make that connection it just was reading the paper yeah reading gosh. the paper and me it, me saying 
hell no, I don't want to do a, I don't want to do this story. The PR guy at the Brooklyn Nets saying, hey, I think you should do this because it's a play of bio. So it basically puts you out there into our fan base where they know exactly what's, you know, who you are. Even though you're from this area and they know, but this this kind of giving them a feel exactly who you are mm-hmm. as a, you know, and as an athlete. So I said, all right, you know, it's for Brooklyn. Um, Jersey is 15 minutes away. Yep. So let me do this. You know, let me do this for people who probably don't know that I'm coming back. So if they see it, they know that I'm back. Yep. And me doing it, I'm guessing, you know, everyone, I always say people when they pick up papers in New York, they pick up multiple papers. Yep. And then they read through them, skim. If you see a picture of a basketball player and you like basketball, you probably read it. Yep. And once he's, he started reading it, it was a guy, but I can't say his name because he said he yeah. don't want that publicity or it's against the law to have that publicity. But he just said to me, hey, man, I said, can I take you out to dinner? Can I meet you? Yeah. What can I do um, to say thank you? He said, you don't have to do nothing. This is my job. I was supposed to do that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What what is at your core? Do you think your your mantra and and that could be, you know, if a kid asks you for advice and they're having a hard time, or a peer saying, "Hey, I have a like," what's your fallback? What are you constantly telling yourself amidst all of the changes in your life that you've had that are extraordinary? To plan ahead, yeah. Just for me to just always have a plan to be to be thankful yeah. and to say, you know, I'm here for a reason. Like I'm giving these guys this platform on my podcast outside shower Randy Foy for a reason. So their story could be told. Just how my story was told um, through a New York newspaper and it other people read it and said, Wow, I can help this I can help this this kid, this successful pro athlete, I can help him. Yeah. I want people to feel the same way when they listen to my podcast. Or even if they listen to this saying, yeah. Hey, it might not be Randy Foy, but it could be someone else. Yeah. Dude, really appreciate you popping in and and sharing your story and and um, it's just like really amazing to hear it and continue to do what you do. Best wishes and and uh, hopefully we'll be able to play some hoops in lacrosse yeah. at some point. Have Definitely. some fun, yeah. Definitely. But thank you, man. This is um this is unbelievable. The setup is unbelievable. Um, the questions um, were unbelievable. The way you set me up into finishing it that way. But I, I just appreciate it, man. Any type of platform where you allow me to sit down and and not just tell my story, but understand and let other people know that, you know, you might not have it that hard. If you work hard, you continue yeah. to, you know, fight through the small things and you continue to push that there's something waiting for you in the end that's really big that you can't even imagine. But just fight, just keep fighting and keep pushing and you'll be all right. If you enjoyed Randy and my conversation, please be sure to let us know. We're both active on Twitter and we'll respond to your feedback. I'm at Paul Rabel. He is at Randy Foy. Be the first to listen to next week's episode as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with Randy's Brooklyn Nets teammate, Jeremy Lin. His episode and many more are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. Also, please hit subscribe when you find us. Lots of gratitude to you for doing so. There's a shortcut to our show notes. Visit suitinguppodcast.com. And of course, a shout out to our show's sponsors today, ZipRecruiter, Magic Assistant, and Saks Underwear. They make this podcast go. I'm very grateful for your support. Until next time, everyone, have a great week.